Will you please turn to the book of Isaiah? The book of Isaiah and chapter 40. Chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And Isaiah 54. Remember what is preceded in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in travail. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Hold not back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, 
the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing wrath for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the prosperity of your sons. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall prosper, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, says the Lord. This evening we come to the last two divisions of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 36 to 39, and then from chapter 40 to chapter 66. There's not a lot that we can say um, about the first part of the book. I've put it on the board. I've only put the, it very, very simply indeed. But we might gather everything up, reminding you, in the last evening we studied uh, an Isaiah, that the key to this book of Isaiah, the key to its essential message, is the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. More than any of the other prophets, Isaiah's whole ministry had a far wider range and scope. Uh, it, it took in a good deal more. Most of the other prophets, for instance, are on the whole more specific. Uh, they are perhaps more detailed. They, they, they take up certain aspects of God's purpose 
and their whole ministry, at least that which we have uh, in the uh, Old Testament, uh, is devoted to that as particular aspect. But Isaiah, whom the Holy Spirit has chosen to be the first in the prophetical uh, division of the Old Testament, has a ministry whose range and scope uh, literally takes in uh, the whole of time. It goes back into eternity, past, and goes on into eternity to come, and it links the two together. What really is uh, the purpose of God according to Isaiah? What really is the eternal purpose of God uh, in Isaiah's heart? What has he seen? What would he say if he was here, uh, was really... Uh, the, the purpose of God of the ages. He would say without any shadow of doubt that it was Christ or the Messiah of God with his own redeemed, transformed, and perfected into him together with the Messiah, becoming the home of God eternally and the heart of a new creation in which there is no more sin. Now that is the eternal purpose of God according to Isaiah. It is not a New Testament conception. It is something that Isaiah saw many centuries before even Paul began to unfold the mystery. Of course, Isaiah speaks of it as Zion. And he speaks of the Messiah and of the church as the servant of the Lord. One moment he speaks of the servant of the Lord in a um, specific and personal way an individual way, as being one person, the Lord Jesus himself, and then the next minute he speaks of the servant as being the whole of Israel, the Israel of God. Behold, Israel, my servant. And you see, in that we have really the heart of Isaiah's ministry. It is the calling out from a sinful humanity of those who are the redeemed of the Lord, that God might do a work in them and present them to the Messiah or to Christ as his body, as his own flesh and bone, as his bride, as the Zion of God. Now that's what Isaiah understands and saw, uh, understood and saw to be the purpose of God. And you will remember that uh, leaving the general introduction, which I must leave to your memory, and the call of Isaiah, the judgments of God in relation to that purpose. Few folk realize that judgment, whether we look upon it in its more uh, sort of dark and unpleasant aspect, 
or if we look upon it more in its positive aspect of correction and training and discipline, judgment is absolutely necessary to the fulfillment of God's purpose. God, you see, according to Isaiah, is the Holy One of Israel. And he cannot just dismiss what we are. He cannot even just redeem us and then somehow or other uh, put up uh, with what we are in our flesh. No, he redeems us. He frees us from the penalty of sin. But then he gets down to the transforming and the correcting and indeed the devastating of what we are in the flesh and the perfecting of what we are in Christ. So you see, this whole question of the judgments of God in relation to the purpose of God are very important. They are twofold. Judgments of God begin at the house of God. And in that, those chapters from 7 to 35, if you read them, many people overlook those chapters, really, of Isaiah. They're rather on the, in the darker vein. They're more the more somber and solemn side of Isaiah's ministry when he was a younger man. But you see, they are important because on the one side they deal with the judgments of God on Jerusalem. That is the judgments of God on his own. And what it does to his own it doesn't destroy his own. The strange thing is that every judgment of God upon Jerusalem leads in his grace to its restoration, its perfection, its purifying, its refinement. And on the other hand, we have the judgments of God upon the nations. And in every case, the judgments of God upon the nations lead to complete desolation uh, and destruction. No hope. So on the one side, the judgments of God lead to restoration and perfection and uh, a knowledge of the Lord. You know, the psalmist once said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And there is no truer word. That's the reason why the Lord has to chasten us and discipline us. Because when we are disciplined and corrected of the Lord, we do not go astray. We are somehow we are somehow purified and purged. Well, that's so much for that first great section of Isaiah. Now tonight we come to chapter 36, and we come to a most interesting division in the book of Isaiah. It is interesting for one or two reasons. One of the most interesting uh, points about it is that it is entirely different to the rest. The other divisions of Isaiah are wholly prophetical, but this division from chapter 36 to chapter 39 is historical. It is the actual recording of certain events in, in the reign of the good king Hezekiah, now, Isaiah lived to be an old man. He lived to be well over 90 years of age. We know that. And yet, in, in his prophecies, when he was told to write this thing in a book, when he had put down into writing quite a lot of his earlier ministry, and he was evidently, uh, under the Holy Spirit, collating the material and putting it into order, 
He was told evidently, as far as we can gather, by the Holy Spirit to insert at this juncture something which was wholly historical. Now, we know that Isaiah was a historian. It says so in the book of Chronicles. He, he wrote the history of the reign of King Isaiah. Here, he recorded two events, mainly, two main events in the quite longish reign of King Hezekiah. Now, we must ask ourselves straight away, what is this really uh, about? We all know something about Hezekiah's reign. Uh, we know, for instance, that it was in the reign of Hezekiah that, that Judah had one of its most remarkable and momentous revivals. You will remember that after the, the reign of that wicked king Ahaz, the temple doors had been closed, the, the vessels had been defiled, everything, the order of the house of God had been changed over. All was different. All was contrary. And when good King Hezekiah came to the throne, he, he was used of the Lord to check the whole flow, the whole current of evil. And a tremendous movement took place. The house of God was cleaned. The service of the Lord was restored. The Passover was kept. And it, we are told that there'd been nothing like it since the early days uh, of the nation. Uh, in the keeping uh, of that Passover. Why, we must ask ourselves, now this is important, why does Isaiah, when he comes to record the main events of Hezekiah's reign, why does he dismiss completely what we consider to be the most important factors in the reign of Hezekiah. The cleaning of the temple, the restoring of the temple, the rededicating of the temple, the putting back into its place uh, of order, the service of the Lord, the Passover, the destroying of the high places, and all the rest of it. Do you know that Isaiah could have, if there'd been any flesh in Isaiah, not dealt with, he could have made a lot of this. For after all, this was all the culmination of his ministry. He could have put down, this is what happened, and that was happened, and I can refer you back to my ministry of such and such a time, and such and such a date, and this is what resulted. Hezekiah did this, he did that, he did the other, and it was all the climax to my suffering and loneliness through the reigns of Jotham, Isaiah, Jotham, and Ahaz. He may well have said it. But under the Spirit of God, and it reveals that this is a man who has been touched by a coal from off the altar of God. He's a crucified man. He is led to the Spirit to record two events only. One is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, and the other is the um, envoys from Babylon. Now, we might well scratch our heads and say, well, they, those are two, two uh, uh, rather, uh, they, they don't seem to us to be so important as the other. But you see, the key to this vital part of the prophecies of Isaiah is compromise is the greatest hindrance 
to the realization or the fulfillment of the purpose of God. Compromise is sin. But compromise in its nature is far more subtle and far more insidious than open immorality. And it is one of the most interesting facts that the prophets denounced involvement with heathen nations or compromise in any shape or form more thoroughly and more categorically than anything else. They knew only too well because all the prophets were men who had an inner understanding of the history of God's dealings with his people. They knew that the whole history of God's people was a question on the one side of compromise and on the other of sanctification, which is the opposite to compromise, to be separate unto the Lord. And they knew that every time the nation was separate unto the Lord, something happened. And every time the nation was compromised, uh, the, the result was tragedy uh, and catastrophe. Why does Isaiah record these two events? Very simply, because these two events in his reign portray and illustrate more than anything else uh, the, uh, the greatest device of Satan in hindering uh, the work uh, of God. Now, it might be just as well if we were asked ourselves, what is compromise? What is compromise? Is compromise just simply um, what we would consider to be um, uh, open, public uh, sin? Uh, shall we say um, something like worldliness? Or, um, oh, many things we could mention, we could illustrate so many things. I is it just something like that? No, compromise is not essentially that. Compromise is the element in us that comes to terms with the old nature and with our selfhood and is not prepared to be 100% abandoned to the law. In other words, it is that element in us of self-preservation when it comes to the work of the cross. That is compromise. You see, you can have a person that never goes near a, a cinema. You can have a person who wouldn't dream of doing certain things, and yet they are as deeply and more terribly compromised than a person who outwardly does those things. Because they are self-satisfied, they are quite satisfied with the measure they've got of the Lord, and they've got into a little rut, a little sort of rigid cell, um, and, and they feel oh, it's all right. They're quite all right. That's the end. Well, compromise is simply a, a refusal, uh, or shall we put it this way, a readiness to come to terms with our life or the flesh. Of course, what does that mean? Of course, it sounds much nicer that way than saying to come to terms with Satan. 
But in actual fact, when you and I come to terms with our self-life, we come to terms with sin. And that was the whole point of Isaiah recording these two events. Now, what are the two events? Well, first of all, in chapter 36 to 38, you have compromise rejected. Now, here's a glorious uh, uh, factor or aspect of Hezekiah's reign. You know the story, don't you? Assyria had completely surrounded uh, Jerusalem. She had laid siege to Jerusalem, blockaded it, cut it off from all sources of supply. Uh, there, Jerusalem now stood absolutely alone. And inside Jerusalem, there were clamoring voices. Voices which said to Hezekiah, Make terms with Assyria. Make terms with Assyria. Let, let's pay anything. Let's do anything to, to be rid uh, of Assyria. There were other voices that said, Let's go down to Egypt. Let's try to get Egypt to send armies to help us. Let's make an alliance. Uh, with Egypt. But you know the story. Hezekiah, when they were surrounded, they were so cut off that they couldn't even get a messenger out. Uh, Hezekiah sent a message to Isaiah. Oh, they, they went their robes and they wept before the Lord. And they sent a message to, to Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah, will you ask the Lord what he should do? And Isaiah said, he sent back the message. The Lord's going to deliver. Just depend upon the Lord absolutely. Don't get involved with anyone. The Lord's going to deliver. And you know the story how when Hezekiah rejected compromise out of hand in any shape or form and depended upon the Lord alone, you know what happened. They went the next morning and all they saw were 185,000 dead bodies. That's all. And the whole host of Assyria had vanished overnight and left just the dead bodies. So, gone. Now, of course, if that happened today, we would call that a miracle. We've got used to a story like that. But you can imagine those people when they saw and heard the threats. You remember how the Rabshakeh came in the park and they stood under the walls and they made those threats. They deliberately wouldn't speak uh, in Aramaic. They spoke in Hebrew so that everyone within the city could hear. And they, and they tried to deride Hezekiah, and they tried to drive a wedge between Hezekiah and the rest of the people. And they promised them so much that they came out and made terms. And what was the whole point? It was very simple. Get the people to compromise. That's all. Get the people to come to terms with us. We'll give them olive yards. We'll give them vineyards. We'll give them nice little plots of ground to work in. Homes they can have. We'll let them have their careers, they told them. And of course, a little later, he said, uh, uh, my uh, commander will send you away to a country. Uh, and he said, I can promise you the country you'll be sent to is a beautiful country, far exceeding anything you know had no effect on Hezekiah and it had no effect on the people. Not one of them, it says, not one of them even answered. You see, the spirit was no compromise. We'd rather die than have any, any alliance come to terms in any way with these people. Now, you see, that was the heart of Isaiah's ministry. If you get a people like that who would prefer to die then come to terms with their self-life or with Satan through their self-life. In any shape or form, the Lord's with them. Because that gives immediately the ground for the Lord 
to realize his purpose. Oh, I know people talk about all other kinds of things that can uh, realize the purpose of God. But Isaiah, with his great ministry concerning the eternal purpose of God, has recorded these two events to, for us. Because it, this is the heart of the matter. You can have all the most wonderful ministry in the world. But if the devil succeeds in compromising us, in getting us to make terms with our self-life, whether it is on a question of career, or whether it is a question of our homes, or whether it's a question of our own personal self-life, whether it's money or health or time or anything else, as long as the devil can get us to come to terms with ourselves and not the Lord, then you can have all the most wonderful ministry in the world, you can have books written especially for your benefit and a much else, but it won't be of any value whatsoever to the purpose of God. Now the miracle happened. Why did the miracle happen? For one simple reason. I believe that it was as if the Holy Spirit said to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, you have heard all Isaiah's ministry. You have heard all that he said about Zion. Do you believe what, he, what Isaiah has said about Zion? Do you believe that Zion is my resting place? Do you believe that, I, that Zion is my eternal joy and delight? Do you believe that I want Zion to be my sanctuary forever? And if Hezekiah had said, I believe it. I believe what Isaiah has said. The Lord would have said then, will not the Lord support Zion? If it is as important to him, do you think the whole might of Assyria is a match for the Lord? Do you think that the Lord is not able to support Zion solely by himself and deliver her? Now, my point is this. That whenever you get anything of the church expressed on earth, whenever you get anything of the purpose of God understood by a company, however small or few, the first device and always the last device of, of, of Satan is to somehow or other, by pressurizing that group, oh, just pressurizing them, or frightening them, by all kinds of things to get them somehow or other to draw back, to make, to come to terms with themselves. And you know from our own experience, all of you in this room, you know something of the things that the enemy gets permission to do to frighten us, to scare us, to say, if you go on, look what happened to Shanzo, that will happen to you. If you do so and so and so and so, this will happen and that will happen. The other, you, he will frighten you. So that if you haven't got a heart for the Lord and if you don't say, well, either I die on this spot or the Lord must deliver me. If the Lord doesn't deliver me, I refuse to make a compromise. I refuse to come to terms with my flesh. I will die. I will die. That is the only spirit upon which the Lord can realize his purpose. It is truly. Either you must come to the place where you say, I go along this path, if it kills me, it kills me, so bless me, Lord, so help me. Uh, if it kills me, it kills me, that is the end of me. If the Lord doesn't deliver me, that's the finish. 
we've often said that the work of God is on the, on the basis of resurrection. What does that mean? It simply means it is impossible. And if God's work is not impossible, it is not God's work. And Satan, if we don't understand that, comes to us again and again and says, oh, you see how impossible it is? This will happen, that will happen, the other. He will frighten you by every means available. And if there's anything in you that likes the flesh and wants a nice time, as it, as it is truly in all of us, and if we are not very definite with that little voice from our self-life, we, we shall come to terms. Now that's one event, but the other event is in chapter 39. It is recorded very simply, in very few words. I might just point out one thing about that other event. You know, everything happened at once. It was not only that the Assyrians surrounded the whole of Jerusalem, but as always, our troubles never come one at a time. They always come together. Hezekiah was critically ill and dying. You remember the story, don't you? At the same time, could it have happened at a worse, a worse point in his life? that just at the time when the walls were surrounded and the whole thing was at its darkest uh, point, Hezekiah lay at death's door, died. Always happens like that. The second event is, is a remarkable one. Some, some envoys come from a far country. Uh, they say they come from a man called King Merodach Baladin uh, in Babylon. Uh, and they come with presents and they have lovely presents, and they undo their presents, and they give them to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah is very impressed by their presents. And then Hezekiah takes them all round the house of God. He shows them all the gold and the silver. You know, a thing he should never have done, for no uh, heathen or unsaved man or woman was ever allowed inside the house of God. But he showed him everything. He showed him all the treasures of the house of God. He showed him all his own treasures. He showed him everything in Jerusalem. And then Isaiah came and said, who were these people? And Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, I've shown them. He said, what have you shown them? I've shown them everything. He said, everything. Well, it all seems very innocent. Why shouldn't he show them everything? There's nothing wrong in that, was there? And just showing them all the silver and the gold and what the Lord had done, like many of us, kind of. Uh, we might have said that Hezekiah was witnessing. I don't know. Hezekiah may have said he was witnessing about the Lord to them. I don't know. But the... The, the story seems very simple on the surface, but it's not simple underneath. For those gifts received, and the way Hezekiah showed them all his treasure, was the way at that time, the ancient method of preparing for an alliance. And it simply meant that these men had come, hearing about the siege, hearing about Hezekiah's recovery. They came and they said, look here, let's get together and see that never again this thing happens. If Assyria comes along that line, we'll attack them in the rear. And then they'll, they'll come off uh, any uh, blockading of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah evidently received them and was agreeable to an alliance. Now, the interesting thing is this. The first event tells us of absolute and remarkable deliverance. The second event brought the severest word to Hezekiah in his reign from Isaiah. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, these people from Babylon that you have received will surely come very soon after you are dead 
and take the whole nation into captivity, and your own sons will be slaves in the king of Babylon's palace. Compromise accepted. Well, you might well ask yourself, why have these two events been recorded by Isaiah? Why? Why did he not record so many? Because they go to the heart of his ministry. On the one side, compromise ruled out and dependence upon the Lord brought in. On the other side, a compromise effected. And the result is judgment. Or perhaps we should use a kinder word because some people don't like the word judgment. We could say chastening, correction, purging. You know, when we get... I know this a little from my own experience, and I'm sure most of you can corroborate it, that when we are compromised, sooner or later, we go into the fires. And in the fires, we suddenly wake up uh, to the point at which we're compromised. Before we, we enjoyed it, uh, it uh, seemed to make it easier. But when we have been corrected by the Lord, we can't touch it again. Well, there you are. That's the historical um, division of the book of Isaiah. But what about the last chapters of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66? Considered by many to be the most wonderful part of the book of Isaiah altogether. Well, we, of course, will only be able to pass over it very swiftly uh, indeed. But you will see that we have entitled these, this division, this last great division of Isaiah, the sovereign grace of God realizing his purpose. The sovereign grace of God realizing his purpose. And the most remarkable thing about these chapters is that just as the first division uh, from chapter 7 to 35, was somber and solemn and the uh, topmost the, top or the uppermost vein in his ministry was, was judgment, correction, discipline. Now we find judgment is hardly mentioned at all. And instead you find that the theme of his ministry in the closing years of his life was grace and mercy and love and the faithfulness of the Lord and his restoration, and the fulfillment of his purpose. All these notes are struck uh, in these chapters. It's also interesting to note about these chapters that in their first uh, application, they deal with the return of a small remnant from Babylon. When Isaiah actually spoke, his first application of what he saw was to that little group that were going to come out under Cyrus. He mentions him by name, actually. He, he is even told the name of the king that is going to um, make the decree to allow the people to come back and rebuild the house of God. And these chapters in their first application are to um, the small little group that returned from the exile to rebuild the house of God and make way for the coming of the Lord. But their greater application, and Isaiah knew it, 
was not just to those that returned from Babylon, it was to the, to the Lord Jesus himself and the church. Beyond the first application, you get a greater application, which of course uh, is to us. We can learn, of course, from both. Um, but uh, here uh, this evening, we want just to look very simply at something that is some something of what is contained in these chapters. If you look at chapter 40, from verse 1 to 11, you have the keynote to this last division. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. An entirely different approach. Before, it was all the judgment of God that was upon both his own people and upon the nations. Now it is comfort. Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And the whole, the whole uh, note, this note is struck at the very beginning, which is going to be, to be struck right the way through from beginning to end. The grace of the Lord is the key to his eternal purpose. If we know something of the discipline of the Lord, and we know something of the judgments of the Lord, as we go on with him, if we know something of what compromise means, we know something of the temptations to compromise that are so strong in every one of us, we know something of the battle and the conflict, which must surely at times make us feel as if we're absolutely blockaded, surrounded, besieged. If we know something of this, the greatest need, if we're going to be part of the realization, the fulfillment of God's purpose, our greatest need is to experience more and more the grace of God. We shall never be able to, to, to bear the discipline of the Lord if we do not know the grace of God. Because ultimately, it is the grace of God that counts. It is the grace of God that will keep us. And it is a wonderful thing that Isaiah saw. You know Isaiah saw, as you know, some terrible things in his life. He lived through some of the, the two worst reigns of, of Judah's history. He lived through, of course, Hezekiah's reign. He saw a revival. He saw a great movement of the Spirit of God, and then he saw that it was superficial. He saw that it didn't go deep enough. It didn't touch the real root of the matter, the real root of the matter. And uh, we find uh, in many ways that uh, uh, in it all, Isaiah could have well just stopped at judgment. He could have well just got angry with the people and stopped there, but instead, Isaiah saw through it all to the grace of God. And he saw, as we sang this evening, that it was the grace of God that triumphed in the end. It was the grace of God. Grace abounding over sin. And now I'm not just talking about the people of God in exile. I'm talking about the work of God. God's own work. And all that sometimes goes wrong in God's work. All the failure and the um, shortcoming and the sinfulness of those that are engaged in God's work, 
he sees through it all and sees above and beyond it all the grace of God overcoming everything. From uh, verse 12 of chapter 40, right through to chapter 48, we find uh, Isaiah dwells upon the sovereignty of the Lord, uh, realizing his purpose. In other words, as we come into this great division of Isaiah, we find that these, more or less, these first eight chapters deal uh, with the sovereignty of the Lord. Now, why does, why does Isaiah spend such a long time on the sovereignty of the Lord? Does he just want to bring us to our knees in sort of dread and terror of a huge and all-powerful God that would, would somehow just crush us out of existence? You read through these wonderful um, chapters from verse 12, chapter 40, and you begin to read right the way through, you find some wonderful things. The whole stress is the sovereignty of the Lord. The Lord says, where were you? Who measured out this? Who did that? Do you know me? How great I am? And uh, so on. Um, you see, if you and I are going to really be called into anything of the recovery of the church and anything of the fulfillment of the purpose of God, the first absolute necessity is a knowledge of the sovereignty of God. We must know it. When the Lord called the children of Israel, when he was going to produce a nation, he took a man called Abraham. And he did not allow that man, Abraham, to do a single thing. Every single uh, step forward in Abraham's life was initiated by the Lord. He wasn't even allowed to have his own child, normally. He had to wait until he was almost 100 years of age, till it was impossible. And then the Lord sovereignly did something. All the way through Abraham's life, it was like that. And it's, in, it's interesting that whenever you go in the scripture, whenever God is at work, the first thing he establishes absolutely clearly, without so that there can be no argument, no contradiction, is his sovereignty. When he gets hold of us and brings us into his work, do you know what the first thing he starts to do with us? He, he starts to give us a vision of his greatness. It's interesting that Isaiah's ministry began there. Isaiah's ministry began there. When he was in the temple in the last, in the year of Isaiah, King Isaiah's death, he suddenly saw the Lord high and lifted up and his actual train filling the temple. He saw the Lord as absolutely sovereign. Now do listen to me. If anyone here doesn't know, doesn't know and experience something of the sovereignty of the Lord, you'll never stand that there will be over the realization and fulfillment of God's purpose. Believe me, this battle is not just in this age. It is raged over ages. It's not just the New Testament age that's seen this conflict raging. It was right back in the beginning, right back in the beginning, right? The conflict that raged over Abraham, the conflict that raged over Moses and that people coming out, the conflict that's raged over every point in time of the calling out of the Israel of God. It's a terrible conflict. 
And I want to say this, that if you and I do not know what the sovereignty of God is, and if we don't have a knowledge of the sovereignty of God, we'll be bowled right over, we'll be absolutely overwhelmed. Because again and again and again we shall come to the brink of the impossible. And we shall say, if we are in the work of God, if this is the work of God, then why? Why? Why does he build walls? Why does he make gulfs? Why does he uh, dig trenches across our way so that we cannot go on? Why does he sort of make us dead? Why does he do all this? Because he's bringing us to a knowledge of his sovereignty. And Isaiah says here, the Lord is absolutely sovereign. Now, now do mark this. Before ever the Lord Jesus is brought forward as the Redeemer, before ever we're told of the way God is going to accomplish our redemption, before ever there is a mention now in this part of Isaiah's ministry of the church of God and all God's glorious purpose concerning the church, he spends eight chapters on the sovereignty of God. And all the time it's the same, I, even I, am he. I am doing this. I will. And you see, if you go right through these chapters, you will find that it all is, the emphasis is upon the Lord himself. In chapter 42, you come to chapter 42. And what do you find? Listen. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighted, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now who does that speak of? The whole of this chapter 42 who does it speak of? It speaks of Christ. But the key to it first is this. My chosen, I have put my spirit upon him. It is the Lord. That's the first thing. He is established in chapter 41, his absolute sovereignty, so that we're silenced before him. He says, did I, know, did I not know what I was doing from eternity? Am I not able to accomplish my purpose? Can I not go through and do the thing that is in my heart? Then he goes on. When he's established that he is able, he says, now let me, let me draw aside the veil and I will show you the next step. You understand my sovereignty? The next step, I will show you my chosen. And he draws aside the veil and we see Christ. And we discover that Christ is the chosen one of God and the only one able to accomplish the eternal purpose of God. It's as if God is saying to us, you're quite right, all of you. You can't do it. Quite right. I'm glad you've, uh, you acknowledge it. You can't do my work. You are sinful. There is something in you which is a bias that leads you in the wrong direction. Even if you want to go in the right direction, you can't do it. I, I want you to understand that. Don't you devote your talents to doing this. Don't you devote uh, your gifts uh, to trying to accomplish my, my, my purpose. I will show you, now that I've established my sovereignty, I will now show you the one who will accomplish my will. And there we find the Lord Jesus wonderfully and beautifully portrayed in chapter 42, the one upon whom the Lord's Spirit will be. And so it goes on, what he will do, how he will accomplish his ministry, how he will reach the unsaved, how he will save and deliver, 
uh, on every side, and so on. And then, in chapter 43 and 44, you know the chapters so well, that's the trouble, I'm afraid, because most of us have taken Isaiah piecemeal. We take little bits here, and we take little bits there, and we get them all, and they're great comfort to us, which is quite right in its own way. But it's a great difficulty when it comes to really seeing it all in perspective. 42, chapter 42, the Holy Spirit reveals Christ as God's chosen one to accomplish his purpose. But in chapter 43 and 44, listen, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And from there on, we find a new note, the Redeemer, I am thy Redeemer. Now, this is the emphasis here, because in chapter 53, a little later on, we're going to have the emphasis on the way that the Lord has accomplished his purpose. But here, it is the, the emphasis is upon the one who has accomplished God's purpose. The Lord says, not only is Christ the only one able and therefore chosen by me to accomplish my will, but I am myself your redeemer. Now, you may not see how that links up with the sovereignty of God, but as you go on in experience, you will discover that. You will discover that. Redemption is not a thing. It's not a work. It's a person. It's a person. And the Lord here is emphasizing his sovereignty. I am thy redeemer. And he gives two whole chapters here in 43, roughly in 44. These two chapters are taken up completely with the redemption of the Lord. And then in chapter 45 to 48, we find all different kinds of things are mentioned. 45, listen, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. But Cyrus isn't the Lord's. He calls him his anointed. Cyrus is a heathen king. Cyrus is a Persian. Cyrus is the man who holds the, the people of God in exile. And the Lord says, my anointed Cyrus. Then you go on to chapter 46. Bell bowed down, Nebo stupor. But these are the great divinities of Babylon. What is the Lord talking about? He speaks of Babylon. And then if you go on, not only to, uh, through 47 to 48, you find he speaks of affliction. Now what is the Lord talking about? He is saying simply this, all things in the sovereignty of God are being used for the good of the redeemed. He can use Cyrus, he can use Babylon, he can use the affliction of his people in exile, but he will use everything for the good of the redeemed. Now that's the message of Isaiah, the sovereignty of the Lord in realizing his purpose. Oh, do, do listen carefully now to what I say on this matter. You see, once you're on church ground, you can have every kind of failure. You can have every kind of sin. But you will discover that once you get onto that ground in Christ, you will find the Lord will bring everything and use everything, even our mistakes, our sins, and our failure. Stay there. And the Lord deals with it. You may get devastated. Oh, yes. It's a dangerous place to be. You'll get, you may get devastated. But you will be devastated by the grace of God. Not by anything else, but by the grace of God. If people want a comfortable time and an easy time. They must get off 
of the young because everything, not a single thing goes uncorrected. Here, it is the city of God, the eternal city of God that is in view. And the Lord is going to see that one of us is, is excluded from that city in the end because he, in grace, did not seek to increase everything that was of himself. Like the horns of the altar, if we cling to them, we, uh, in spite of what we are, the Lord deals with us. So you see, uh, it's a wonderful thing to realize that uh, once you're here, the sovereignty of the Lord, uh, once you're in that place, the sovereignty of the Lord uh, works like that. He, he does not overlook what's wrong, but he deals with it, and he uses it in the end. That's the marvelous story of David and Bathsheba. He used it. It is the marvelous story of David numbering the people. Those two things were terrible sins. But the Lord used it because he was on the right ground. And not only used it, but wove it into his purpose so that Bathsheba became one in the line of the Messiah. That's what the Lord does when you're on the right ground. It's not uncorrected. It does not go without judgment. Lord turns it in his grace when confessed and makes it the platform, a further stepping stone for realizing his purpose. Well, we must go on. From chapter 49 to 59, we find the way appointed by God for realizing in his grace his purpose. And what is the way appointed? The crucified Christ. Crucified Christ. Now, if you look at chapter 49, you will see straight away that it begins with the Lord Jesus. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so it goes on. It's the Lord Jesus. And it is the Lord Jesus called and appointed and separated as the way God has chosen to realize his purpose. Now, of course, we all know this, unfortunately. It's uh, become knowledge to us. But you see, uh, if only it could come home to us with the shock that it came home to the folk uh, at the beginning of this age uh, in the New Testament church. What a shock it was all to him to find proclaimed everywhere the good news. And what was the good news? That God had taken the Messiah and crucified him. A thing filled with horror. A scandal. That's the word, offense. A scandal to the Jew. Crucified. It's as cursed as everyone that hangs on a tree. But the gospel was, God has appointed the Messiah to the cross. The death of the cross. This is the way appointed by God. And the Lord Jesus you find in these chapters from 49 onwards is appointed to rejection and appointed to apparent failure. He says, for instance, in 49, he's remarkable, I've labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And right the way through you will find it's apparent failure. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah of his own ministry in the days to come and say, it's a failure. But I've been appointed to a failure. I've been appointed to be rejected. 
he goes on to how they had scorned him over the page you will read in uh, verse 7. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Now, this is the one appointed. How is God accomplishing his purpose? By a crucified Christ. That's the way he is uh, uh, accomplishing his purpose. And by that way of failure and rejection, he is building up and perfecting the body uh, of the Lord Jesus. That's how it's going to be done. That's the way the Lord's going to realize the purpose, how he's going to obtain a Zion. If you go on to chapter 52 and verse 7, you find the cross is the basis for realizing God's purpose. Now, here we come to the heart of Isaiah's ministry in chapter 52 and chapter 53. What did Isaiah see? He saw the most remarkable thing. Now, I must say it reverently and carefully, lest I be misunderstood. He saw that even an uncrucified Lord Jesus could not accomplish the purpose of God. An uncrucified Lord Jesus could have accomplished the purpose of God if there had been no fall. But it needed a wounded and broken and chastised and bruised Messiah for the purpose of God to be realized. Now Isaiah sees a vision. He saw a glorious vision before of Christ, one with the Spirit of God upon him, one anointed to preach good tidings, marching forward gloriously. Now, he looks, and he says his visage is marred, it's ruined, it's spoiled. He cannot hardly look upon it. And then he says, why? Who would take note of this one? How terrible it seems. And through this you find sorrow and suffering, and loneliness, and failure, and death. Everything is mentioned in these chapters. And what is it? It is the basis for God's realizing of his purpose. The only way that the Lord can realize his purpose is by crucifying Christ. There's no other way. I think some people have got a mistaken idea that if the Lord Jesus, even if he hadn't gone to the cross, he could have accomplished the purpose of God. He couldn't. The only way that we could be redeemed and the only way that God could find a home in humanity was by a crucified Messiah. The only way. By his, his, his being crucified in weakness. Well, you go on, you find in chapter 54, the chapter that we read together, a glor the glorious end of the cross. Isaiah sees right through, a through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, through to the most glorious end. He sees a family. Sing, it says, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in travail, for the children of the desolate one will be, uh, one will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Isaiah sees through it all to a family. Now this is the whole point of God's purpose. He wants a family. 
And the only way that he could get that out of a sinful, ruined, marred um, humanity was by himself being ruined and marred on the cross. By that way, he could retrieve men and women and bring them to a new life in God and then build them up into the family of God. So that section ends there from 54 to 59. It's a wonderful uh, uh, few chapters dealing with salvation, with restoration, with service. All these things are dealt with in these chapters from 54. What is the result? You see, we've been kept out of the picture till now. Now, suddenly, uh, the, Lord, the Lord brings us all into the picture. Now that we've seen a crucified Christ, now we are brought into. We are born of God. We are uh, produced by the travail of the Lord Jesus. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And then you will find in these chapters that in service uh, and in the realization of God's purpose, there's got to be an identification with a crucified Christ. And this is most important. In these chapters from 54 to chapter 59, you will find that Isaiah suddenly sees something. Before he can go on to a glorified Zion, he has got to point out that not only must we be redeemed by the Lord Jesus, but we must be identified with the Lord Jesus. And he goes on to a most remarkable uh, description. Listen. The way this part of his ministry opened was this, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. Now he says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, I will lay thy stones with fair comforts. And if I am not mistaken, his description is the description of the city. Walls built of precious stone. How does that come about? How does that come about? It comes about by those who are prepared not only to be redeemed and enjoy the redemption of the Lord, but by those who are prepared to be identified with a crucified Christ. Now that simply means that if we are identified with a crucified Christ, we can never die for anyone's sin. But we can know something of the wounding and something of the bruising and something of the loneliness and something of the forsakenness. And we can know something of the suffering and something of the sorrow. <coughs> to be identified in the travail of the Lord is to be brought into, into touch with the very heart of a crucified Christ. Paul said he bore about him with him the stigmata of the Lord, the, the brand marks of the Lord. He had become so identified with a crucified Christ that he, he said, I bear about in my body spiritually the very brand marks, the very the very the wound marks of a crucified Christ. What did Paul mean when he wrote to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ? Did he just, was he just talking about something theological, something just doctrinal, something that was scriptural? No. He meant not only was he redeemed and he praised the Lord for his redemption, but he was identified with a crucified Christ. 
And that is why he speaks all the time of the offense of the cross, the scandal of the cross, not drawing back from the offense of the cross, not being stumbled by the scandal of a crucified Messiah. <coughs> None of us like the, really, there's something about the crucified Lord that uh, just somehow or other doesn't, our flesh doesn't like it. We have to be identified. And right through these chapters you will find some very, very wonderful things about it. Listen in chapter 58. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Listen, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now, is that not being identified with the crucified Christ? <clears throat> it's all very well to be redeemed and enjoy the benefits of redemption, but to deal your bread to the poor, to cover him who is naked. Verse 10 if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. See? Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and so on. See? Identification with the Lord. That doesn't mean you've just got to keep one day uh, in a peculiar way. What does it really mean? I tell you what it means. It means that if you're going to be identified with a crucified Christ, there are a lot of things that you'll keep your foot from. <coughs> so, crucified Christ. And what is the end from chapter 60 to 66? Those last six chapters, what is the end of that? Seven chapters. It is the end of God, the eternal home of the Lord in a new creation. Isaiah has shown us that the sovereignty of the Lord is absolute necessary to the realization of his purpose. And he's shown us the one whom he has appointed. He has shown that he himself is the source of our redemption. He's shown that he can turn everything to good account. Then he reveals to us the way by which he will realize his purpose by a crucified Lord Jesus. And do you know that it is more true than ever that every time we come into a fresh experience of the purpose of God being uh, more fully realized amongst us, it is by the cross. Always. Always. I never come into it any other way than by the cross. It's not that you suddenly journey on from the cross and get something. It is simply that, the, that somehow you enter into the cross more deeply. You, you become more identified with the crucified Christ, and then something more of the purpose of God is accomplished. Isaiah 53 is not just an historic landmark. It is a principle in the purpose of God. Principle in the purpose of God. Even in eternity, the Lamb is there in the midst as it had been slain from the foundation of the world. Reminds us that, that the whole purpose of God can only be accomplished by way of the cross. The Lord Jesus dying for us and the Lord Jesus dying as us is the only way. But when we come to chapter 60 to 66, we find immediately that we're introduced to the end. And we have, in chapter 60, the city of God brought, Arise, shine, for your light is, has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And from that point on, you find the city of God is brought into view, 
and you find the end of the Lord, wonderful end of the Lord, everything flowing into the city of God, everything glory, everything righteousness, all is as it should be. God's great purpose is achieved. From chapter uh, 62 to 1, 61 and to chapter 62 verse 5 you find the yearning of the Lord again it begins the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and then in chapter 62 for Zion's sake I will not keep silent until we make a great mistake if we think the Lord's just gone to the glory and there's no, no yearning, no desire oh we make such a mistake the Lord's desire is now to see the fruit of his travel and be satisfied. He's done the work. He's got the basis. He's cleared the ground. He's made the provision. Now his whole yearning is to see the end accomplished. It is indeed a finished work. But he wants to see the end. The thing worked out fully to its end, its fulfillment. It's as if the Lord Jesus has laid the foundation and now he's waiting for the top stone to go on. You can't build out, you can only build up. But the foundation is the Lord Jesus. He's laid it, it's a finished work. Now he wants to see the top stone put on. You see what this teaches us? Redemption is not an end. It is redemption into the city of God. We are redeemed into the And when the Lord Jesus redeemed us, he doesn't leave us. He's redeemed us to build us into the city of God. Let me put it another way. He has redeemed us to make us part eternally of himself. To to fuse us into himself. Eternally. That's our redemption. Now Isaiah has seen the sovereignty of God uh, seeking to obtain this, to realize it, to achieve it. He has seen him giving the Lord Jesus to a terrible death to uh, obtain it. Clear the way. Now Isaiah sees right through to the end. And he sees it. And he sees it achieved. Uh, He sees the Lord yearning. But he sees the Lord yearning for the day when it's complete. It is going to be complete. The Lord knows that. But he's yearning for the day when it is complete. And then we find that it is the cooperation of his own that he sees. He says, ye that are watchmen upon your walls of Jerusalem, have set watchmen all the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Now the Lord is yearning and he wants us to yearn. The Lord is, is, as it were, uh, seeking the completion of Jerusalem. Now he wants us to take no rest, to give ourselves to him in cooperation of it all. Well, that's the book of Isaiah from chapter 65, 66. You see the end. A glorified Zion, the Lord dwelling in the midst of her, having made the place of his feet glory, in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth. That's the end. It's interesting that Isaiah ends where John ends. It is the end. I don't, I don't think it's the end 
uh, of, of revelation, uh, one day we shall find it's the beginning of new revelation. But it's the end of that which in God's sovereignty he is allowed to be revealed to us. And all God's revelation ends at one point. It is most interesting. All of it always ends in the city. Never goes beyond the city. We do not know what lies beyond the city. We don't know anything about vocation. We don't know anything about our destiny. We don't know anything about service beyond the city. All we know in the Bible is everything ends in the city. It finds its consummation, its climax in the city. Isaiah's ministry ends in the city. And he sees it absolutely glorified, perfected, the very dwelling place of God. And he sees the nations flowing into it, bringing all their wealth. Everyone is being brought up to the city of God. It's become the center of a new heaven and a new earth. What is the message of Isaiah? Isaiah's message is simply this. God has a purpose. God has a tremendous purpose. God had a purpose in eternity. His purpose was that there should be a humanity that would, that would voluntarily of its own will choose to be with him, choose to be part of him, choose to become, as it were, his clothing, for want of a better word. To, be, to become his sanctuary in which he could dwell. Man was made to be possessed by God. That's all. Simply. Isaiah says something's happened. Something's terrible has happened. The whole concept of God has been wrecked by sin. How does God treat the situation? How does he react to it? Has he flung up everything? Said, all right then, they won't be like that. Let them go their own way. They'll destroy themselves. That's all right. No. The sovereignty of the Lord starts to move into action. And he says, I will. I will. They may have chosen something else, but I will. And I will not have just another people, but I will take my people out of them. I will remake them. I will take the very thing that has destroyed them, sin. I will become sin for them. And then through becoming sin, I will reach out and make them my righteousness. And I will gather them into myself. And I will fuse them into my being. And I into them. And I will accomplish my will. What was in his mind in the beginning shall be that which will be accomplished in the there won't be any change. It will be just absolutely as if there had never been any sin. Only it will be the more glorious. Because the Lord, in his wisdom and in his ability, found that Christ crucified was the way to retrieve us, bring us back, and make us what he originally intended us to be. This is the message of Isaiah. Zion as he calls it, is the heart of the purpose of God. Upon it and with it, everything centers and is focused. And the most wonderful thing of all is that the Lord, whatever we might feel like, however impossible it might seem, the Lord's going to have it in the end, a perfected, purified bride at the side of the Lord Jesus.